Turn, if you would, uh, if you brought your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, and we'll begin reading with verse 10 this morning. Uh, we're in a series called Vital Signs, and, uh, and we're taking this verse by verse, and so we're going to read this together, and um, just to set this up very briefly, uh, once again, a stark contrasts are being offered by John. Uh, John sees everything in black and white, and, and with John, there's uh, no middle ground. Um, you're, you're getting familiar with that. Started out in chapter 1 with darkness versus light, uh, truth versus lies. Uh, last week, uh, last week Chad talked about the fact that, that we can be slaves to sin or we can be slaves to righteousness uh, under the lordship of Christ. And, and that's where we really experience freedom uh, in Christ is, is when we come under him and we begin to live in a righteous and faithful and obedient way. In the, in the text this week, look at this. J- John is going to say there are only two families here on the planet. There's, there's the world's family that is fathered by the devil. And then there's the family of God. I mean, that couldn't get any more stark than that. Uh, he's going to talk about murder uh, versus love. Uh, life versus death, and, and clearly John's intent is, is to, in every way, uh, it, grab our attention to help us understand this really is a life and death thing that we're involved in here, spiritually, this morning in studying the Word of God. So we're going to read this together. Begin with verse 10. Would you join me? If you didn't bring uh, a copy of Scripture, it'll be on the, the screen. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, And murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil. And his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers. That the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death. And into life. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brother's. But if anyone has the world's goods and he sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's a bit unsettling, to say the least. The, the crime wave in our own backyard 
literally, the homicide rate in our neighborhood has skyrocketed in recent months. And, and there's just no sign of stopping it. What's also interesting is that there, are, there is no sign anywhere of breaking and entering the perp. That's police talk for perpetrator. That's perpetrator. Keep that word handy. As I said, there's no sign of breaking and entering because the killer has been getting in and out through pet doors. Under the cover of darkness. Oh my, it's, it's, it's scary. Um, the little doors that flap. And, and, and by the way, we, we have one of those. Those little doors with the flap. I put it in myself at, at Deb's request just a few months back. You see, our, our cat, you see, loves to do his business outside. And, and, so, and if we keep him locked up, d- does he use the litter box? Uh, uh, of course not. No way. He takes it out on the dog. He leaves a wet circle on the dog bed. Or any place that Daisy likes to sleep. So installing the little pet door was a great idea. That is until the crime wave started in our own backyard. Even more disturbing than these nighttime homicides. They, they didn't stay in the backyard. We began to wake up almost every morning to a dead corpse in the middle of the kitchen or the dining room floor. Take a look at this recent crime scene photo. The body count, the body count may may soon rival one of those Arnold Schwarzenegger movies like Terminator 2 or 3 or I Lose Count. Deb is living in fear. I have to be the first one to go down every morning. And she won't let me leave town for any reason because she's not going to let me, she's not going to stay there with a serial killer on the loose. Just two weeks ago, in an eight day stretch, one full size robin, one large gecko, who we found in two pieces, the tail still wiggling over in the corner, a dead mouse, three bunny rabbits. All the PETA people are here. (laughs) I want you to know the case has been closed. We have a suspect in custody. The, the case is a lock. The paw prints were an easy match. You know, hair fibers and slava samples match the DNA of the per pet trader. Uh, that's him in the orange striped jumpsuit. <laughs> Clever customer, very cat-like in his maneuvers. We couldn't even get very far into the interrogation before he was by his defense counsel. He lawyered up quite pretty quick. Those lawyers are canines, just salivating for the big payoff. You know, you talk about this one, he's not just an ambulance chaser, he'll chase fire trucks, the postal truck, anything. Tell you the truth, I went to bed early last night, 
because I, I want to get some good rest before the morning. And uh, we're having a creative arts team over tonight. So Deb stayed up late in the kitchen and she's cooking. And a uh, little before midnight, she comes and she woke me up because the cat brought a live bunny rabbit through the pet door while she was cooking. And, uh, and unfortunately, I was not able to save it by the time I got my robe on and got downstairs. Here's the deal. Our cat is a natural born killer. That's, that's just his nature. He's a cat. It's an inborn trait. You see, and Deb and I are faced with a decision. See, we can close the pet door. We can try to do anything we can, right, to keep the cat from going outside, which we often do at night now because he hunts under the cover of darkness. But we, but, and we have domesticated him in some ways. But basically, he's selfish. He, he just tolerates us because we feed him canned food. But in his heart, he's a killer. He's a hunter. He's a killer. It's like the story of the, the frog and the scorpion. There's a, a flood and the stream is full of water and the scorpion begs and pleads with the frog to take him to the other side. And the, the frog says, I'll take you to the side if you just promise not to sting me. And so the scorpion promises and the frog lets the scorpion get on his back and swims him across the stream. And as soon as they're on the other side, the scorpion stings him. And the frog says, I thought you said... You weren't going to do that. You promised. And he looked at him and he said, I'm a scorpion. You get it? It's nature, if you will. Now, I started our reading today with verse 10. Chad ended there last week. Did you see it? It's evident who are the children of God, who are and children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. You see, what John has done, he's bridged between two subjects. The subject Chad talked about last week was the fact that as a Christian, we cannot continue to live habitually in a pattern of sin. Nor can we, as a Christian continually have a pattern of not loving and caring and serving people in the body of Christ, brothers in Christ. And, and Chad's arguments last week, if I'm remembering these correctly, Chad, you, you can correct me. Chad said last week, the reason we can't habitually sin is because sin is compatible with who we are. We have a new nature, if you will. There's been an attitude change here. And so it's irrational for us to continue allowing sin to be the boss of our life. It's because it's the Lord who must be the boss of our life. It's incompatible with who we are. There's been a nature, a change in our nature. Get it? My, my cat, his nature is one thing. And I can't change that. But in terms of humanity, spiritually, those of us who were dead can be born again and we receive a 
a new nature. Secondly, Chad says, because the, of the work of Christ in us, that we're being renewed in our mind, in our thoughts, and our thoughts have become different. And Paul says at one place, we have the mind of Christ because of what Christ is, the work that Christ is doing within us. And also he said, the third thing he says, because of the work of the Holy Spirit that has been implanted in us, that now indwells us, the Holy Spirit is at work as, as well. And also all those same reasons that Chad talked about last week apply this week. We have a new nature. If we're a Christian, because we have a new nature. And Christ is at work in us. And the Holy Spirit is relentless in bringing about the needed change in our life. Conforming us into the image of Christ. And one of the ways that He conforms us is to become more like Christ in the way that we, that we love. And so let's work on our definition of love for a minute, if you will. Um, we talked about agape, I, and that was my assignment a few weeks ago. And we're going to work on a definition a little bit for a minute. And we're going to have another opportunity to circle back to love in chapter 4 when, when we get there. And, and uh, I'm sorry, I, I haven't been paying attention, but Chad was objecting last week to the fact that every time it comes to having to talk about sin, he gets that assignment. Chad, I'm sorry, but, but I, you know what I'm saying? You know, Chad has gotten one, two, and three on sensitivity to sin, but, but hey, he's a sensitive guy, and, and he loves sin. No, I didn't mean it that way. No, no. But it's just fallen that way, so maybe the next time we talk about love, you'll get to do that. We should think about that, okay? Now, did you know that um, Eskimos have 52 words for snow? Do you know that? Do you know why? Because it's that important to them. It's just that important to them. And Scott Peck, in his little book, The Road Less Traveled, which is a book about what love really looks like, says we need more clear words about love. Action words about love. Peck's definition of love is simply this. The will to extend one's self for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. If you've never read that book, it was a bestseller some years ago and, and, uh, and it's still a good read. Another theologian said this. In describing agape, agape always desires and works for what is best in the other person. So Peck says we need more words. If the Eskimos have 52 words for snow, and if uh, Paul Simon has 50 ways to leave your lover, like... I can't remember all of Paul Simon's 50 ways. I used to love that song. Get off the track, Jack. Make a new plan, Stan. Don't mean to be coy, coy Roy, but right on down the line. Okay. 
if, if Paul Simon has 50 ways to leave your, there ought to be 50 ways or even 52 ways for us to stick around, hang in there, and really learn how to love each other. Don't you think? Now, Paul gets us started with a good list. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Probably one of the second, third most familiar passages in all of Scripture, right? How many of you know that is the, quote, love chapter? Paul gives us a good, a good list, a place to start there. So let's take a look real quick, and let's see if we, can, if we can just come up with some names that describe for us, some words that describe what love really looks like as, as action words. Because Peck talks about love. It's not about emotion or romance. The real deal, real deal love always involves work, and it always involves courage, because we have to overcome two things, laziness and fear. Always have to overcome laziness and fear. So, so Peck says, any, any action that does not involve and make us work and does not involve courage is not love, he says. So, so let's look at 1 Corinthians 13. Let's see if we can, by Peck's admonition, add to that list of what it means to, to love. Now, verse 1, listen. You need to really, because most of us read 1 Corinthians 13 with a sort of a sentimental thing like at weddings, Right? We need to read it the way he wrote it. Ready? Verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries, and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but I have not Love, not agape, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Now, Paul just dropped a bombshell right there. You see, we're, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 13 in a minute. We're going to read the list. But you need to ask yourself, where did Paul come up with the list? Well, if you read the first 12 chapters, you start getting an idea. I'm saying because, you know, because, because the, these Corinthians are involved in all kinds of rivalry with one another. They're comparing themselves. They're, you know, they're looking out for good old number one. They're proud. They're, un, you know, they're unloving. They are condemning and criticizing each other. There's all kinds of stuff. Paul's list in 1 Corinthians 13 just comes from the first 12 chapters where he just delineates all the things they're not doing within that body at Corinth to love each other. They're acting immature. Chad referenced it that way. You're acting, you're acting in a carnal way, immature, like, like little kids. You're fighting over stuff. That's where he gets his list. And, and then Paul comes to 13, and, and the, the first three verses, essentially, here's the bombshell. He's saying, you know what, guys? You can have all the gifts... I mean, you can get prophecy and knowledge, and you can do marvelous works. You can even do miracles. But if you don't have love, you're not even a Christian. You're not even a Christian. Wait a second. You say, how can people do, like, you know, have all these great spiritual gifts? And, you know, like they could be great preachers, and, and they could be great teachers, and they could be, they could be miracle workers and, prof, and, and prophets. And, and you're telling, yeah, without love, without agape in your life, it's, if it's not there... 
you're nothing. Spiritually, nothing. You, you can have all, you can do great works. He's, the scripture is marvelously consistent here. Marvelously consistent. Jesus, Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? You see it? And then I will declare to them, listen, words of Jesus, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. So you can do great works. You can have great spiritual gifts and still be lawless, unloving, and not be a Christian. How can that be? Listen, even within Jesus' own band, remember, he sent out the disciples into the village and he gave them, he empowered them and they worked miracles and, and, they, and, and they spoke and they spread the gospel and these phenomenal things happened. And, and who was among them? A guy by the name of Judas Iscariot. You think Jesus just gave Judas Iscariot like a wet book of matches? Or did, or, or did Judas Iscariot display some real power? Did God use him in some incredible way? And yet, did he know God? You see, this is, what, this is John's argument. John is just being tremendously like, consistent with Scripture. With Paul, with Jesus, and now John. John says, he says if, you, if you have not love, if you don't love your brothers... You may not be a Christian. You know what? If that's a consistent pattern in your life, you probably aren't. Does that rub somebody the wrong way? If I've offended somebody, I thank you. Because you need to be offended. I mean, the whole point of this book is about that we're to comfort those who are disturbed, but disturb those who've gotten too comfortable in their pattern. That's the idea. So now let's read his list. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning of verse 4. Listen. Here's some words, some action words about love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant nor rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't hold a grudge. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. And it endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And when I was a child... I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, 
even as I have been fully known. And so now faith, hope, and love abide. And the greatest of these is love. You see, we're, John has admonished his readers to obey the commandments, to, to stamp out, to eradicate any pattern of sin, and to obey, to live consistently in the will of God and in his commands, in, in Jesus' teaching. And what is the greatest commandment? It's to love. It's to love. Just like Paul described there. And so from this text, I want to just quickly do two things. I want, to, I want you to look again at the source of that love. And I want you to look at the substance of that love. And, 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 and when we talk about the substance, John gives us a little insight to what love is not and then what love is. So let's talk about the source. What is the source of that love? You've got to go back to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1 for that. So go with me. Here it is. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. See what kind of love, agape, love the Father has given to us, has bestowed upon us is the verb. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children. God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Does it sound a little bit like Paul? Looking through the dim kind of a glass. And everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You know, Paul loved the idea of adoption. And he spoke often about our entrance into the family of God by adoption. John, it was different. John, when John speaks about, about our entrance into the family of God, it's by new birth. It's by rebirth. John 1.12 says, But all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the, of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. See, the source of love is the new nature that is ours on the basis of our birth into the family, our supernatural rebirth into the family. Let's keep rolling. Let's talk about the substance. Let's talk about the substance of love. What love is not? What love is not? Look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil, who was of the evil one, his father, the devil. That's, the, that's that side of the family. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, Poneros, the evil one. And he murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. You see, and, and this is the one time in all of 1 John that John uses an illustration from the Bible. From, from the Old Testament. The scriptures of that day that he had. And it's Cain and Abel. And it's a, 
it's a pretty negative kind of illustration. It, I mean, there's nothing, nothing quite as good as a bad example of what love is, right? If you want to get a clear picture. Who, who were Cain and Abel? <laughs> the first two sons born to Adam and Eve. Right? Um, the two sons of the, the original family of origin, if you will. Does that make sense? Um, and there's stories in, in Genesis chapter 4. Now, what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve's fall, the fall of man. And here we are, one chapter later, the firstborn of Adam and Eve, and he's a murderer. He's a murderer. I mean, it didn't take long for the family to become dysfunctional, did it? Not really. And he murders his brother out of jealousy and envy. Because his brother did something right. His brother made a sacrifice, humbly made a sacrifice to God. And the sacrifice was received. And there are some who would say, you know, that Abel's sacrifice was from the flock. And so he slew or he, he sacrificed. He, through the giving of blood, he sacrificed and and Cain brought a sacrifice from the field of his own gatherings from his own farm, if you will. And, and, uh, and some say that because Abel's sacrifice, because they're without, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. You know, that, that, and God says to, to Cain, Cain, stay with me here and you'll get this right. Cain. You know, God, God reaches out to Cain, but what does Cain do? He goes and finds his brother in the field. And literally, and it says he slew his brother. And the Greek word there is the word for butchered. In essence, what he did was, it's literally, he, he cut his throat. He cut his throat. You know what I'm saying? And in what John may be inferring there is that, you know, instead of Cain offering a worthy sacrifice, he sacrificed his brother. Slit his throat. He murdered him. And then John throws in this little parenthetical statement in verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Why? Because you're trying to live righteously. Because you're trying to follow Christ. Right? It's interesting. I, just watch, people. Watch what's happening in our culture today. Just watch. When the name Christian was first used of the people of the way, and the word Christian means little Christ, it was a derogatory word. It was a, it was a slang word to basically to insult, to criticize, you know what I'm saying, and to, and to damage anyone who was a Christian. There will be a day in this country given the direction of our culture unless something significant happens to turn the culture that Christian will again be a cuss word. In some circles it already is. Do not be surprised, brothers. You think John didn't know what he's talking about? There were two sets of brothers in this story. You've got Cain and Abel. John had a brother named James. 
You remember James? What happened to James? Where's James? In the book of Acts, he's the first martyr in the church. And at the time John writes this, all 11 of his best friends and associates, his compadres in faith, have all been martyred. He's the only one left. You think John can't speak with some authority here? Guys, do not be surprised if the world hates you. Because you seek to live a righteous and obedient life. My seminary professor, Bill Hendricks, loved him. One of his favorite phrases was, love like that always ends up on a cross in a world like this. Love like that always ends up on a cross in a world like this. So he uses an illustration of Cain and Abel. Basically what John does is he calls out three things. Here's what love is not. It's not murder. Number two, it's not hatred. Number three, it's not indifference. And at first glance, that's kind of an odd sequence, isn't it? You'd think you'd kind of ramp up toward murder. Right? I think about it, my first place my mind went when I read that was to James chapter 1. When James describes this progression of sin in our lives, listen to what James says. No one undergoing a trial or a temptation should say, I'm being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own desires. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. It aborts life. And so you look at this, here's the deal. I don't think John sees this as a progression here. In fact, I think what John is saying is, really, all three of these words are one and the same thing. Murder and hatred and indifference. They're all the same. And they all come from the same source. If you will. And I think John's reference point is probably Jesus' own words. Matthew chapter 5, very first sermon. Listen, these are Jesus' words. You have heard it said... To our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother, angry will be subject to judgment. Whoever says to his brother, you fool, 
the literal word there is raka. And, and that word comes from the, it's, Hebrew is a guttural language, but it comes from this idea of how you hark up spit. He who spits at his brother calls his brother fool, be subject to the Hanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come, then come and offer your sacrifice, your gift. I think John just remembers Jesus' words, and he's saying, you call it anything you want. Call it murder, call it hatred, just call it indifference. Just not caring. Just call it apathy. Just call it disengagement. It's one and the same to John. All right. Let's take a quick pass at what John says love is. Three things. Three things. Number one, John says in verse 14 that love is life-giving. Love is life-giving. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. And whoever does not love still abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know no murderer has eternal life. No murder has, really has the life, eternal life in them. Real love is life-giving. Now, there's a paradox in there. And, and, and Scott Peck even points it out in his book. There's a paradox there. And I'm saying that when we actually love and we invest and we give life to others, we lose our life for His sake. We gain life. We get, when we really learn how to give love, we get more in return. We, we experience something within us that affirms and strengthens that, that in us. But real love, John says, is, is life-giving. And when, we know it when we've passed from death and into His life because He gives life. There's a second thing he says. He said, real love is self-sacrificing. Someone may say, well, I know I'm supposed to love Dave, but, but I'm not sure how. I'm not sure what that would look like. And we take him right to verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. All we have to do is follow Jesus around to learn how to love. We're without excuse in that regard. We know love because he laid down his life for us. And then John goes on to say, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Wow. The cross is a beautiful symbol of the vertical relationship with God. And Jesus lives that to perfection 
know what I'm saying? The, in the vertical relationship, totally obedient and submissive to the Father. You know, I'm just saying on our behalf so that he can stretch out his arms horizontally on the cross and encircle us. This is how we know real love. That he gave his life. That he sacrificed. And we, John says, we ought to be willing to do that for each other. Does that challenge you like it challenges me? And there's the last thing. Real love, John says, is difference-making. It's difference-making. Look at verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods, and he sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Real love is difference-making. The admonition to us is quite simple, that we ought to be alert and ready to see what God wants us to see, and then to whatever extent we have the resources, the resources to come alongside and meet that need, we ought to be willing to do that. Is that simple? Here's, you know, Here's, here's how that works. Okay. Acts chapter 3. And this is Peter and John, the writer of the text. Peter and John are, are walking into the temple at the third hour for prayer. And they notice a crippled man, a beggar, by the, the, the beautiful gate. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's what it is. Peter and John have walked in that gate, in and out that gate, several times a day for like months but this time, as they were walking through, it says Peter fixed his gaze upon the man. It's like Peter saw the guy. He like he saw the guy. And so he stopped. Right? That's step one. You see what God wants you to see. Right? And then he stopped. And then Peter looked at the man. And Peter does this. Silver and gold have I none. Right? What resources did he have? The guy's looking for an alm, you know, the guy's looking for a coin. Peter says, silver and gold, but, but such as I have, I give in the name of Jesus. Taking this man's best interest at heart, what does he do? He reaches out and takes this guy by the hand and brings healing. In the, because, he, because he recognizes that God has resourced him. And so when I see when God causes me and helps me to see what I need to see, which comes when we submit to him and we say, God, help me to see, because you're not supposed to take on everything out there, right? You're, you're, you're not, every need is, you don't, that's not yours. That's his, but he'll show you what you need to see, and then you, then you commit resources, even resources of your own, to meeting that need. It's black and white. Mark chapter 3. Jesus is in the synagogue, and there's a man with a withered hand, and it's the Sabbath day. And Jesus says to the Pharisaical crowd, the church crowd that's all around him, is it right to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? <laughs> What's he talking about? I was just going to leave the guy alone. Do you understand what I'm saying here? 
Jesus saw the guy. He fixed his gaze, and, and, and then he, he, he knew he had the resources to meet the need. Real love is difference. Let's pray.